And how many of you are wondering, how could I care less about something than who wins the Super Bowl today? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to imagine. I can't imagine. I haven't thought of something yet that I, but that's just me. You're forgiven. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We're reading from Luke 8. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And I can't wait any longer. I just got to make one comment here. I was reading that this morning once again, and I had this, that's church. That's, we are this crowd, and all we're doing is just waiting for Jesus. I, and I just like that picture. They're, they're all excited and because Jesus is, Jesus is going to be there. I'll keep reading now. And there was a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and, you're press and, and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceived that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people, why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child, and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. I, um, I want to say the word that we're going to talk about today. And I want you to sort of take a little, um, take your own pulse, a little emotional response or word association. When I say the word miracle, what do you feel? What comes first to your mind or to your body? Excitement. Excitement. Skeptical. Skeptical. Me? Me? Threatened. Threatened? I want one. I want one. Yeah, I kinda, when, you, when you say you're going to talk about miracles, I feel like I, I want to start a little bit like the old Oprah show, and you're going to get a miracle, and you're going to get a miracle, and you're going to get a miracle. Look under your seat. It's right there. I don't know. It, 
What I found is even in my own life, at certain seasons, depending on where I am, sometimes the word feels awesome, and sometimes the word feels scary, and sometimes it makes me mad. All kinds of... So in this very room, in this crowd of people, we're all coming to this word and to these stories from different places. And so we're open to that, and we accept that. I'm going to put a chart up on the screen here, and here's what I'd like for you to do. Now, it's a little confusing, but there are five categories. And in the middle, there is what I call average. Now, if you have a pen, you can kind of mark the, the chart. You don't have to. You can just take a mental picture of this picture. And what I want you to do is relative to average, where do you perceive yourself in relationship to what you see as average in terms of social, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. All right? So would you say, and, now I, and let me remind you that humility is not always making yourself look terrible. Humility is just being accurate about what is true. All right? So you may think, so for instance, I'll tell you, I'll give you, I'll give you mine. I'll give you two. Physically, I put myself above the average line. What I mean by that is most of my life, even including my, my accident, I have, as I have experienced my friends, my body has not really ever failed me. Like, I've always been able to do what I want to do. I don't get sick very often. My, my body has not gotten in the way of the things I want to do. I have felt like, based on my friends and at my age, I, I feel like I'm above average in that sense. And I would say emotionally, I have felt most of my life way below average. I've always struggled with depression. And I, you know, I've had that, well, I've got friends who just, they, I can't understand, they wake up happy every day. Like they just, since they were kids, they just wake up and they're happy. I mean, it doesn't mean bad things don't happen to them. Of course they do, or they're sad at times. But generally speaking, they're just kind of happy people. That's not me. So there's a couple of examples. So I just want you to real quickly look at that and where do you put yourself in each of those categories. I'll give you a second. All right. There is nothing scientific about this. This is just my own little made-up little chart, all right? But this is what I'm kind of calling how I sometimes perceive and hear people talking about what I would call the, the, the miracle blessing matrix, all right? So in other words, if you're significantly below the average line and you would like to just get to average, what I experience in my life is that is what some people might call a miracle. If I'm ever going to get to that, that would be miraculous. And then I've discovered that even just in how we use our language, when you're sort of above that line, we call that blessed. Like, I would use that term. I've sort of been blessed with a body that has not gotten broken that often. I'm not sure those are necessarily accurate. It's just how we perceive it. So as we sit here today, most of us have some areas in our life where we want something to happen and we've longed for it most likely for a long time and we might call that wanting a miracle I, I want to just talk about the word before we kind of get into this 
the, these two stories that happened in the life of Jesus. The, 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 these last several weeks as I've been thinking about this word, I, I was kind of hoping I would get more clarity, but in, in fact, it's become more confusing to me. So I'll just own that. It's a kind of a confusing word for me. Um, I, I don't think the definition of miracle is that God intervenes. Because I think God is always intervening in, in the sense that God is present. To, to say that a miracle is when God intervenes, I think might communicate that God is sitting aloof in heaven, uncaring about what happens. Something gets his attention and he wakes up and he kind of invades and then leaves again. Some of us have a mental picture of that is what a miracle is. I don't think that happens. I think we are in fact, in a sense, living surrounded in miracle. I was in, um, in, in, the middle, in, in Israel uh, almost two years ago. And I don't like to brag, but I rescued a drowning woman. Clearly she was drowning. Now here's the, here's the interesting thing. She was in the Dead Sea. True story. In the Dead Sea, if you just relax, what will happen? You, you're buoyant. You can, read, you can read in the Dead Sea. She, she, she was from Japan, and she did not swim. She could not swim, and we were, we were out there, and something happened. There's something also true about the Dead Sea. You've never been it's horribly sulfurous, and it's, it's, it's really scary because of that, and if you get it in your mouth, it, it's horrible. It was really horrible. And something happened, and she somehow got a big splash of water in her mouth, and she panicked. And as she panicked, she lost her buoyancy, and she was going under. And, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this. First time I've experienced where I saw in somebody's eyes, they thought they were going to die. And I just grabbed her and held her. And then the lifeguard came out. seeing He saw what was happening. So here's what I'm saying. Was it miraculous that she didn't drown? Maybe. Or if she had just relaxed, was she surrounded by miracle, by being buoyant? And see, Do you see where I'm sometimes confused about this word miracle? I think in one sense I could talk about how we're surrounded by it, and other times there's something else that happens that, that sort of intervenes. God is always present. All things are held together by Him. Gravity and physics make a world that is predictable. That's also sort of miraculous. It makes it easier to navigate life because we have predictability. But sometimes, sometimes God changes the rules about gravity or about medicine or anything related to physics in the natural world. I've heard people in this last year talking about that the Chicago Cubs were a miracle. I don't know if that's true, but it might be. I met this morning as I was in Starbucks, I met a man who, I don't know if this is miraculous, but his life on the chart, was on the physical side, was as low as you could go. He was in a chair, a motorized chair. Great, great difficulty navigating the world physically. But he was the funnest kind of guy you'd want to meet. He, was, he kind of made the whole place light up. He was filled with sort of a happiness or a joy. I don't know what it was. Is that miraculous? I don't know. I don't know. 
And then I think that, man, just, just to be the follower of Jesus requires, in a sense, living in the miracle. Because God asks of me something that is not possible on my own when he says, Carl, I want you to love your enemies. Carl, I want you to lose your life. Carl, I want you to confess your need of me and trust me. And all of that without an extra something doesn't seem possible to do. All right. Here's my definition. It's just written in pencil. I'm just working on it. All right? So don't hold me to it. It's just, we're just to kind of keep the conversation going. Is a miracle when God does the unpredictable or the unlikely? Or in the midst of living in a miracle, is a miracle another miracle? Something like that is sort of my definition. Let me share with you when I was working on this one miracle that I know of I've experienced in my life and that is my marriage I, um, I, I know I've shared this at different places but not everybody's here every week so I'll, real quickly my wife and I met in a fundamentalist Bible college we were for me, the very first time in my life, to be honest, I experienced a sense of popularity. You see, I was this fundamentalist kid in a public high school. Doesn't make you a lot of friends. <laughs> but when you have sort of found your, sort of your energy by being really good at something, and I was really good at Bible and religious stuff, and then you go to a fundamentalist college, I'm already way ahead of a lot of my peers whose parents sent them there to fulfill some, I don't know, judge's sentence for a year. <laughs> parents hoping that this would be the thing that would straighten their, you know, pot-smoking kid out. And so I, I was sort of a popular kid, and my wife was voted the most popular girl in her school. So she's always been popular. And we met at this Bible college and fell in love. And as I've shared with you, when people ask, you know, how did I propose, I say the stick turned blue. And our lives collapsed. Spectacular belly flop into adulthood. Eight and a half months after being married, as in, 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 in many ways I was less prepared than most 19-year-olds, and she is 18, to be a parent than your average person. And now I'm having to be a husband and a dad, and I'm, bare, I'm not even an adult yet. And April and I, in our early marriage, we, we didn't fight like couples fight. We fought like siblings fight. Screaming and yelling and breaking and throwing and stomping out. And the most immature... It was, it was like, looking back, it's unbelievable. And I know how many times in, over the years as ill-equipped as we were to be connected and to know anything about intimacy. A lot of that stuff that happened on that chart has to do with your family of origin, not just your genetics. And in my family of origin, I had nobody prepared me to be an adult and one who could be intimate with somebody else. I didn't have one clue what that looked like. And we, we laugh now. Had we had the, if we could have afforded to get a divorce, we probably would have. We were too broke. 
And now 36 years later, we are happily married. We fight, but not like siblings quite so much. We're able to disagree and get hurt and angry, but it not destroy the relationship. And I'm saying that because I'm telling you statistically, if you, get in, if you were given our story and you look at all the people who have our story, most, by far most, end in divorce. And as I say that, I'm scared because some of you are going, oh my gosh, I prayed and prayed and prayed for a miracle like that and God never gave it to me. And so I don't want it to be a shaming thing or like I did something great. And I can't explain it. So that's how I look at miracles. Before we look more deeply here in chapter 8 for a few minutes, I'm wondering if we could quickly name, when I say a miracle Jesus performed, can you just say out loud what, what, what comes to mind for you? Water into wine, very first one. What else? Say what? Walking on the water. Feeding 5,000. Broncos win the Super Bowl. <laughs> the blind could see. Pay attention to that one, Peter. <laughs> Say what? M moving a heart. Absolutely. Raising the dead. That's like the trump of all miracles, probably, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So been looking and thinking about all these miracles. And I asked myself this, what is present and similar at every miracle? Don't answer out loud. It's a trick question. Because you see, I, I was um, looking for the very thing that I now realize is what makes me afraid to preach about miracles because most of the sermons I've heard as I thought about it were this if you do this formula then you can get a miracle and what I noticed as I looked just my observation is there is nothing the same in all of the miracles except for one thing and I, I think that that's a pretty important story that's being told. Because Jesus would know that if there was these, all these similarities, we wouldn't really worry about him. We would just work the formula. And there we have the human story of religion that is embedded in our DNA. If I can find the formula, I'll pick that every time over the person. The only thing I have found to be in every miracle was the presence of Jesus. And I believe in miracles. I've seen many miracles. But I've seen Jesus present all the time. All right. I want to read through this passage once again a little more slowly, and I'm going to just make some comments. And then we'll just talk about what I find, what we find to be similar. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there was a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. 
just so we can sort of picture it together, I think it's maybe in our world, we might say something like the chairman of the elder board or the deacon board or the, the person who was not from the sort of ecclesiastical, priestly kind of side of things or the pharisaical side. Not all Pharisees were priests or rabbis. It wasn't the rabbi, but it was somebody who was sort of the lay person who was significant and had influence. The reason that's important is because already in Jesus' story, immediately we find that it is at the religious upper echelon that Jesus is finding the conflict. It is the religious echelon that is being threatened by this Jesus. They are already, for lack of a better word, scheming how to get rid of him. In fact, in this crowd, my hunch is, there were some Pharisees, and they weren't there excited to see this crazy radical rabbi. They were there trying to catch him doing something wrong. We find that lots of times. And I say that because in, I think it's accurate that Jairus would have been aligned with those folks. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. The Bible makes a bit of a, a big deal or gives special attention to this idea of an only child, the widow of Nain, her only son. Jairus' daughter, his only daughter. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. There is something that we connect to. And it doesn't mean that if you have ten children that a couple are spares. <laughs> but it, 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 it connects to us in the sense of loneliness and what it would be like. That story shows up here. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Most folks would understand that to be most likely some kind of weird and tragic menstrual disease or anomaly. What's important in this story is for us to remember that in this context of a Jewish worldview, a Jewish culture, what the implications of that were for this woman, which were she was what's called ceremonially unclean. I, I just want to remind you, make sure you don't confuse a ceremonial story with the sort of the moral law of God. All are told for our best, but sometimes people put them together. They're telling two different stories. But in this case, this story, and we won't go into what that is, just, it just meant that she was for between 7 and 14 days sort of on the outside. The other part that's important to remember, that if she touched someone, what happened to them? They too became ceremonially unclean. It makes you think about um, Jesus healing lepers. Lepers were also one of those in that category of being unclean and outside, telling a story about what it is. And then, but if you touch them, you too become 
not only ceremonially unclean, but potentially diseased. So Jesus is doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm going to skip down a little bit. We know that she had courage, came up behind him, she touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And then picking back up in verse 45, and Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Uh, the, miracle, you know, the miraculous power switch of Jesus. Here's an interesting observation. The default is on, not off. You see, we think of it as something that is, the default is off, and you do something, and then Jesus will switch it on and do something for you. Isn't it interesting? Jesus is walking through the crowd, and I've already told you, I got pretty excited thinking about the idea of this crowd, is what we do is sort of each week when we come together waiting to see Jesus, and Jesus is in our midst, and his default switch is on. But no one touches him. I mean, they touch him, right? I mean, because the scene we get here is, is sort of like... Um, Black Friday Walmart at 6 a.m. You know, it's just, it's, just, it's just chaos and upheaval and people bouncing and jostling. But, but they're not touching him in the way she touched him with whatever we might define as faith. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. Uh, this, we're going to come back to this in just a few minutes, but this is important to just, just make a little note. She was afraid. She was afraid. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. She told the truth out loud? In church? Or crowd? Unheard of. And how she was immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter, back to the Jairus story, is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. There's that word again. That emotion. Only believe. And she will be well. I'm going to skip down, and it says, All were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Pause for just a moment. Um, just to be clear, Jairus and his wife did not laugh at this moment. This is one of the ways we know that Jairus was sort of in that upper echelon. You see, one of the ways you could sort of, it was just part of the culture, relative to your wealth and stature in society was the number of mourners who were present at your significant loss. These, most likely, were hired mourners. They were professional wailers. This is what they did for a living. They, they showed up and they could wail. They could, they, could dis, they could demonstrate to the world your inner turmoil in a way that was probably very helpful. Helpful. 
to be surrounded by wailing when you've lost your only daughter. Of course that would help. But they're not, you see, they're not really invested. So when Jesus says, she's not dead, they laugh. Jairus isn't laughing, and his wife isn't laughing, because they're, they, they're desperate. They're desperate. They're not emotionally connected, really, to the story. They are scoffing in the worst way. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. Last verse, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Very quickly, I just want to make a point of that. You may, if you've read some of the New Testament, um, the Gospels, you've noticed that it it's like, feels like, I don't know, 50-50. Half the time Jesus says, hey, go tell somebody, go tell the priest, go, go tell your family what happened. As a matter of fact, the miracle right before this, he told them, hey, go back and tell your family what happened. Tell the story. And then half the time he says, don't tell anybody. Now, there's different reasons for why he's doing that. But it's interesting. I, I, I always thought there was like some secret meaning that was only about him. And, and like, because one time he does say, you know, my, my time has not yet come. But then I, then I thought about my own experiences, like when, when God does something really amazing and how I like to talk about it. Because when I talk about it, everybody thinks I'm amazing. Like it's really under the veil of look how amazing God is, but I'm kind of nudging God out of the way and going, hey, God doesn't do that for everybody. Must be something special about me. This is my theory on just this moment. I'm wondering if he knew it would be harmful for them in their spiritual life to go tell others about what had happened. It's just a thought. All right. More quickly now, what are some things that I have found to be true in this story and why the stories, I think, happen together? Because in one sense, they don't seem very similar but on another level, I think they're incredibly similar. Here's what I find in both of them. They were desperate. They, um, they were not necessarily religious. I think this is important to remember. They came to Jesus not because they had had some sort of revelation about the truth of who he is. Not because they had been doing some study and they, they started putting together the Old Testament prophecies going, hey, I think this is the guy. They were not religiously motivated. They were motivated by the desperation of their life. They had no other options. None. Zero. That's what motivated them. And the reason I say desperate it's because what they did was going to potentially cost them dearly. Remember that word afraid and trembling keeps showing up. Because what could happen is this social ostracization. As they come clean about their desperation, their fear was that they could lose what was their their life, their world, the way they knew it, what it meant to be accepted. In both cases, 
we have the story of fear and courage colliding. I, um, I wonder if, um, if, in fact, you can be courageous without fear. I don't think you can. Isn't courage not doing something because suddenly you, you, you've mustered up something that makes the fear go away, but doing something in the midst of being afraid? It, to me, it's similar to, to, to faith. That faith is not the absence of a doubt and wonder. It is in the midst of doubt and wonder that I exercise my faith. In fact, if it were a for sure deal, if it were a known thing, I'm not so sure that is faith. Of course, when they came to Jesus, they did not know what the outcome of coming to Him would be. They did not know that. In fact, they anticipated in some ways maybe the worst, but their desperation propelled them, impelled them, compelled them. I got it right, finally. In recovery, we call that a bottom. When life, and you've tried everything, you've tried every lie, you've done everything you can, but life is no longer manageable. You can't do this anymore. We've changed. What we used to believe was true about, about um, a bottom, what they call a bottom in, in your anonymous societies, was like, we, we, like it's when you got arrested or your wife left you or something horrible happened to you. That's not necessarily true. Bottom is whatever a person perceives it to be when they say, I no longer can live like this and I'm willing, I'm willing in the midst of my fear to become public about it. They were courageous. Let me give you this little summary of this story. The crowd is all around Jesus, who has his love and his power and his healing switch turned on. But very, very few are willing to risk the fear of being honest to come to him. Very few will take the narrow way to admit, I need a Savior to confess. He's my only hope. I, I hope, I hope I didn't set you up because you, this is, this, I want to be careful here. You see, the miracles of Jesus are often a glimpse into the reality of the kingdom. That, that there is, my reality is, for most of my existence will be a life without pain. For most of my existence, I, I will not have to exercise courage and faith. Most of my existence, I believe, I will be in his presence, un, unassaulted by the consequences of my bad choices and a world that's gone crazy. 
So I don't want to promise that, that for everyone here that we can somehow fast forward into that moment in the kingdom. The, the kingdom is here and not yet. It's both. It's that weird paradox. But, but I do want to promise you this miracle that I see over and over. And that is that the miracle of the present Jesus who you may have been afraid of, who you may be resistant to, who the thought of confessing that he is your only hope and you've tried everything else is just too embarrassing. I want to invite you into that miracle. I've got two options for you today. One is at the end of this time, and I think before the church meeting, there will be some prayer counselors. That may be a place to try that. You may have something so deep in your heart you've never said to somebody, would you pray for me about this? Because the saying it out loud is so scary. I get that. I'm going to invite you to do that. And the other is, of course, this miracle that we, in this divine drama, replay every week. And it's, it's not like some I love Lucy where I'm just bored with it. I've seen the story and I know what's going to happen. Somehow it's new each week. Not different, but new. That this is a way that I remember. He's my only hope. And there is no better news than that. Like This is the best news. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he then took the cup. He said, this is the blood of the, of the new story, the new covenant. The new covenant, is, a covenant is, is a deal. Here's the new deal. It's all on me. In just a few hours, he's going to scream from that cross, it's finished. I took care of this for you. <laughs> it's a miracle! <laughs> this one is the juice. juice. I did not share with you where I stand on the intellectual mental side of that scale, <laughs> but I think it's obvious. So we have juice and wine. And then on my right here, there is a juice and gluten-free option also. And you are invited. There is no restriction on the table, well, save one. This is kind of weird. Hang with me. You gotta, you're coming to it. It's finished. It doesn't mean that you, by your effort you, you get something. It, it means that symbolically walking down that is you say, I need this. I want this. This will be our miracle today. So Lord, like Jesus did that night, we thank you for this bread and for this cup.
and we thank you. Not in the most glorious way, you are our only hope. Amen. Amen. I love what Carl said about the default um, always being on instead of off. It made me think of the scripture where it says um, that all of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. And um, Carl uh, had to leave early, and as he was leaving unbeknownst to me prior to this, he ran out and said, can you read this for benediction? And I said, sure. <laughs> um, so uh, he said, this is the best miracle. And so this is the miracle for every one of us from Colossians 1. It's a prayer, and um, just receive this as you go. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Amen.